Good morning, Redemption City Church. It is good to be with you all. My name is Mark. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm a member here in the church. In uh, 1988, a white woman named Peggy McIntosh wrote an academic paper that lit the world on fire, at least the Western world. And the fire that she lit has only gotten hotter in the 36 years since she wrote that paper. Her paper was called White Privilege and Male Privilege. It included in it a bunch of examples, 46 examples, in fact, of what she termed white privilege. She coined that term. Examples like, I, she's speaking as a white woman, I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. Another example, if I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. And I can be reasonably sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. Dr. McIntosh first conceived of writing this paper after a three-year frustration that she experienced. She was teaching seminars at Wellesley College on how to integrate women more into academic disciplines. This was the late 80s. Women often felt excluded from academic disciplines, and she was leading seminars on how they could be included more And so university faculty from around the world would come into Wellesley College in Massachusetts to take these seminars and then take this teaching back to their universities, back to their colleges around the world in order to be of some help there. And men and women were coming, faculty from around the world, and Dr. McIntosh began to notice a pattern. The women who would come and attend these seminars were so enthusiastic about the material being presented, they would quickly say, how can we adapt this material to become a university course that we can then offer to the freshman students who are coming to our colleges and universities? But the men in attendance to these seminars who were equally enthusiastic about the material and, Dr. McIntosh reports, kind and nice and decent men were completely dismissive about the idea of adapting the material and turning it into a class for students. And Dr. McIntosh was confused by this. She was talking about this experience in an interview in The New Yorker uh, about 10 years ago, and she said that she found herself going back and forth in her mind over the question, are these nice men or are they oppressive? that I thought I had to choose. It hadn't occurred to me that they could be both. The aha moment came when she remembered one of her own experiences that she had had some years earlier. About six years earlier, she'd been reading some essays, a series of essays, written by black women in the Boston area who were reporting that they found it very difficult to work with white women in the workplace, that they were feeling condescended, they were feeling overlooked, they were feeling dismissed. And when Dr. McIntosh read that series of essays, she reacted strongly to it. 
She said, how can they say that about us, about white women? We're nice. And she even had the thought, this was in 1980, we're especially nice to work with them. And as she remembered her own experience, she had this aha moment. It dawned on her, niceness has nothing to do with it. Niceness has nothing to do with whether we are unwittingly being condescending, being dismissive, even being oppressive. Now, this paper that she wrote, it's formidable. It's actually stood up. You can read it online to this day. It has a lot of very interesting points to make. And it's formidable because McIntosh is brave enough to look at this issue from both directions. She doesn't posture as a victim. She doesn't posture as someone laden with white guilt. She actually sees that she is underprivileged in some ways, namely her gender in academia, and overprivileged in other ways, namely her race in the workplace. And so she's able to see past the tropes of victimhood or white guilt and actually understand that all people are born into a kind of societal pecking order. And her summation of how privilege works, I quoted at length, I think we have it up on the screen, this is what she says, this is how privilege works. What I believe is that everybody has a combination of unearned advantage and unearned disadvantage in life. Whiteness is just one of the many variables that one can look at, starting with, for example, one's place in the birth order, or your body type, or your athletic abilities, or your relationship to written and spoken words, or your parents' places of origin, or your parents' relationship to education and to English, or what is projected onto your religious or ethnic background. We're all put ahead and behind by the circumstances of our birth. We all have a combination of both, that's advantages and disadvantages, and it changes minute by minute depending on where we are who we're seeing, or what we're required to do. Now, who could argue with that? Who could argue with that? Every one of us can acknowledge that we are born with advantages and disadvantages. The question is, so what? What do we do about that? Anything? That question is the match that lights the fire. It's been lighting the fire for 36 years. That's what all the fuss is about in our present cultural moment. I remember when I was 12 years old, my family moved. It was actually on my 12th birthday that we moved. And we moved from the house that I was born in which was in a fairly sketchy neighborhood. We lived on a dead-end street directly in the flight path, and we were next door to the airport. I'm telling you, next door to the airport. So it was low income, to put it mildly. And my family had a change in financial circumstance, and so we were able to move on my birthday into a much nicer neighborhood. And I remember being excited about it, this new adventure. We were moving on my birthday, and I was going to get my own room. Felt like a good day. But then, the next school year came. 
And I had to take the bus to school, and so I was standing out at the bus stop on that first day. And I noticed that all the other kids who were standing at the bus stop with me, 12 and 13-year-old young people, were different than me. For one, they had much nicer clothes than I did. They had much nicer hairstyles. Probably got their hair cut by Drew or somebody skilled (laughs) in the profession. They had much more expensive backpacks, and they spoke differently than me. It was like they had all been in the same club their entire lives. And in fact, they had, in essence, because most of them had been born into homes in that neighborhood, born into the upper crust, and taught a certain way of being. I remember that after experiencing the awkwardness of this a few times, coming home from school was even more awkward, because we had to get off the bus and then walk in the same direction. Invariably, some of the people would walk you know, several blocks right alongside me, and it was this painfully awkward scenario, and so I would plan for how I was going to get off the bus more quickly than anyone else and get out so far ahead of these other kids that there'd be no awkward walk-alongside moment. And one day I was performing this particularly well. I was probably 100 yards out in front of everyone else, and I got to my house, and the way I got into my house after school was we had a shed in our carport, and we had a hidden key inside that shed. And so I'd have to get into the shed, take out the hidden key, go and unlock the front door. Then I would leave the front door open, go back to the shed, hide the key, and walk back into my house. Well, I had done all of the steps of opening the door. I'd gotten back inside the shed. And then to my horror, those kids who were following 100 yards behind shouted out from the street, Hey, kid, your front door is wide open. Well, at this point, I'm straddling the lawnmower in our shed inside the carport, and I was too terrified to even show my face. I was embarrassed that I had to get the key in this way, or this was different than the way these kids lived. And so I shouted back, pretending that I was inside the house, Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm just cooking a snack. I'll come close it in a minute. And I could kind of hear their discussions about me. And then I just waited, straddling the lawnmower for what felt like 20 minutes to ensure that they had made their way across the earth before I showed my face and went inside the house. They were not trying to make me uncomfortable. They weren't trying to make me feel inferior. It just came naturally. Every single one of us can share a story like that. If you think about your life, you can share a story of when you were made to feel inferior in spite of the fact that the people around you may have been perfectly wonderful people. They may have been nice people. They may have been kind people. They may have been even going out of their way to make you feel comfortable, and yet you still felt inferior. If you reflected about it long enough, you could probably remember a story the other direction as well. It would take more reflection. A time when you felt superior You might not have even noticed that when it was happening. You'd have to think back. Was there ever a time when I was a part of the group that was unwittingly, perhaps, but very naturally, making someone else feel less than, feel inferior? Sometimes the consequences of those status differences are very small or seem very small, like when I was feeling awkward my shed or at the bus stop, 
Or say when someone shorter gets picked last for the basketball team, right? There's times when the consequences seem small. And sometimes the consequences are quite large. Like if someone gets passed over for a job or a promotion strictly because of their ethnicity. Either way, this issue is a five-alarm fire in our time. It's raging. And depending on your political viewpoint, you may want to put that fire out as soon as possible. Pastor, wrap this up. we got things to do. Let's move on. Or you may want to pour enough fuel on that fire that it burns our entire societal structure to the ground and we have to start over from scratch. Wherever you are on that spectrum, here's what matters today for us in church. God cares deeply about this issue. And accordingly, the Bible has a lot to say about it. A lot to say about it. We are in week number six of our series on gospel culture. We're looking at the one another commands of the New Testament. We've walked through five of those so far, things like forgive one another, confess your sins to one another, honor one another, etc. And today, our passage addresses how we handle privilege in the church. We read it a moment ago. Let me read it to you. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 16. He says this, live in harmony with one another, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, this particular verse comes to us in a long list of commands that the apostle is giving in chapter 12 for how Christians are to live. He says things like abhor evil, love one another, show honor to one another, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, show hospitality, etc. The list is actually much longer than this. So when we get to verse 16, live in harmony with one another, it could be easy to mistake this for Paul saying something like, you know, just get along. Don't quarrel. Don't hold a grudge. But that's not what he's saying, not in this particular verse. We know that because the Greek verbiage here could actually be translated, have the same mindset toward one another. The ESV says live in harmony with one another, but the Greek is actually have the same mindset toward one another, or think of one another in the same way. Another way of saying that would be have the same kind of concern for everybody in the group. And then Paul's words immediately following the start of verse 16, draw out his meaning further. He says, don't be haughty. That is to say, don't elevate yourself. Don't lift yourself up in the group. He says, associate with the lowly, or literally, go along with the lowly. Let the lowly take you along into their life, into their way of being. That's what we get in the Greek. Hang out with the people of low status. And then Paul completes this thought with the refrain, never be wise in your own 
sight. Don't position yourself atop the pecking order. Be humble. Be a nobody. Be like all of us. Somebody with a lot to learn. Someone unimpressive. Someone unimpressed with yourself. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's building on one of the central themes of the Bible. You don't want to talk about privilege. Don't read the Bible. He's almost quoting here from Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 7, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. I could cite many other Proverbs that say a very similar thing about not elevating yourself. This instruction to not view yourself too highly, to be humble, and to move toward people of low status and see yourself as equal to them, it is everywhere in the Scripture right from the very beginning, right from the earliest moment, from the very first story when Eve eats the fruit. Why does she eat it? Among other reasons, to make her wise. She wants to elevate herself. She wants to be like God. She wants to distinguish herself, to be a somebody. And we see this same theme at play in the law given at Sinai. God instructs his people how they're to move toward the people on the margins. Or in the wisdom literature, I mentioned Proverbs. Also in the Psalms, the prophets speak to it repeatedly over and over again. There are too many places to cite here. Suffice to say, God is not simply interested in people of high status being kind or nice to people of low status. He wants the very notion of high status to be undermined. He wants it to be cut down to size. For whatever advantages some may have, to be shared so freely that they are given to those who lack them. For those advantages to be leveraged for the good of all without partiality, without any sign of favoritism. You know what that means? It means we have to be aware of this issue. It means we have to talk about this issue. How can we go along with the lowly if we're not even aware of who the lowly are in any particular context, in any particular circumstance? I think the mistake that some people of higher social status make, and I've made this mistake, certainly, they say, well, I don't even see class. You know? I don't even see race. I just treat everybody the same. No, you don't. No, we don't. There is a reason that God is so concerned with instructing his people on this point, and that is because it is not easy. It actually doesn't come naturally. In fact, it's otherworldly otherworldly to defy the status symbols of our time and move toward people. There's another section of Romans a few chapters later where, the Paul, where Paul gives the same instruction. He actually uses the same language, live in harmony with one another, but he explicitly connects this idea of having the same concern for everyone with the otherworldly way of Jesus. This is Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 5. The Apostle Paul writing still, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another 
in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is in essence praying here, right? May God grant you this harmony, this concern for everyone, this status-defying life together in accord with Jesus. That is to say that you would live the way that Jesus lived, in accord with who Jesus was. Who, who did Jesus call to be his closest disciples? Who did he choose to be his apprentices in ministry? It was fishermen. It was tax collectors. It was people of the very lowest and even despised status that Jesus moved toward and welcomed into his life. They called Jesus a friend of sinners. Why? Because he was given to debauch to living? No, because he hung out with unsavory people. Unsavory people were his people. Lepers and sex workers and tax collectors. The lowest of the low. Liars and cheats. He sought them out. He had meals with them. Who are your people? Who are our people? Redemption City Church. What would it look like for you, for me, to actively undermine the systems of our present day Western Michigan culture that keep people down? that hold people in places of low status? What are the advantages that you and I have that could be shared in that effort, that could be leveraged to undermine those systems? I look out at this congregation, and there are so many examples of people doing just that. Last week, Pastor Mike wanted to have some people stand up and honor them right during the sermon, but he said there's just too many people to honor. I feel the same way with regard to this issue. Those of you who have adopted children into your families and welcomed refugees into your homes and poured out hours of life and service for the good of others and given jobs to those who may need it and made friends with a neighbor who was lonely or desperately needed a friend. You are an inspiration. So many of you in this congregation are so far ahead of me when it comes to this topic. You are an inspiration. And you are evidence of the life of Christ manifesting here in our midst. That the Spirit of God is alive and that Jesus is present here. Let's keep going. Let's keep growing. Keep inspiring us. Keep inviting us into that work with you. There's so much more to do. There's so much more injustice to undermine. There's so much more communion to be enjoyed as we continue breaking down those walls and reaching across lines of status and coming into rich fellowship with people that are not like us. There's so much more pride in our own hearts that needs to be exposed, needs to be confessed, needs to be repented of, needs to be set free from Paul writes, 
we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Whenever talk of privilege comes up, it is very easy to get defensive. I think that's because we have all had hardships in our lives, every one of us. And we've all overcome hardships over the course of our lives. And so there's a line of thinking that goes, why can't those people just overcome like me? You know, if we give too many handouts, people will take advantage or they won't develop grit or they won't experience the satisfaction of rising above. Those are valid concerns. There is a kind of helping that hurts, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He says those who are strong, those who have status and means and resources, they have an obligation to bear with the struggles of the weak, the underprivileged, those on the low end of society, because this is precisely what Christ has done for us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were deserving of scorn and shame and reproach, Jesus stepped into that place of reproach, stepped into that place of scorn, and he took it on himself. Paul's not saying those who are strong should keep their distance and drop checks onto those who are weak to hopefully solve the problem, or those who are strong should elect government leaders who will handle it all through the tax system and redistribution system, and we can sort of wash our hands of it and pat ourselves on the back. No, he's saying, enter in. He's saying, step in front of the reproach. Enter into the experience of what it is to be a person of low status, to be a person of low privilege. Enter in such that you feel it with that person. So that you even identify with that person. You find the things in your own life that can help you empathize. Bear the burdens with people who are struggling. Be of one mind, one heart. May the church be a place where we lean on each other, where we count on each other, where self-interest flags. How does this happen? Well, this is where the scriptures really begin to sing because Paul is not the only New Testament author who has this concern. His contemporary James, brother of Jesus, is a pastor in Jerusalem in the first century. Jerusalem was a place in the first century dominated by questions of status people groups differentiating themselves from each other because of status. And James spends much of his epistle calling on Christians of all status levels to be of one accord, to treat each other equally. And then James provides this little gem of wisdom for how. I'm going to read it to you. 
James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Can you hear the harmony? That's our word for the day, live in harmony. Can you hear the harmony? James here is harmonizing with the Apostle Paul. The scripture, as you bring the writers together, it starts to sing to us. How can those of high status and those of low status be of one mind, James tells us? By remembering who they actually are. I know many of us are wary of a worldview that sees everything in terms of power. Some of you are hypersensitive to that. That's not all bad. Oppressor versus oppressed, haves versus have-nots, rich versus poor, men versus women, white versus black and brown. We don't want to buy into the kind of intellectual rot that would have us wind up calling good evil and evil good. And there are plenty of answers to the so what question of privilege that do just that, that defy God and dishonor the order of his creation, that is not the song that James and Paul are singing. The Bible identifies the same challenge that Dr. McIntosh did. People have different starting points. People are born with advantages and disadvantages, but the Bible goes a very different direction with the so what question. And that difference boils down to a single word, identity. James says, let the lowly boast in their exaltation. In other words, in the kingdom of God, the lowly are exalted. The lowly are raised up. The lowly are given high status. And he says, let the rich boast in their humiliation. Because in the kingdom, the rich are brought low. The kingdom of God is the great equalizer. Christianity provides the only identity on the market that carries no merit with it. None whatsoever. The whole rest of the world is scrambling to build identities that will prove something. Namely, I'm good. Or said another way, I'm better than others. I'm better than you. I'm superior to you. I come from the best race. I belong to the best gender. My sexuality fills me with the most pride. My political party, just so you know, were the good guys. The late Tim Keller says it this way, better than all of us as usual. If we get our identity from our ethnicity or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant toward people you think are bigots. If you are a very moral person, you will feel superior to people you think are licentious and so on. Race, gender, sexuality, politics, open-mindedness, morality. When we cobble together 
identities for ourselves, we define ourselves against the other. We actually codify the very inequalities that we're trying to break down. We hold these status distinctions in place. But to be a Christian, to be in Christ, is to receive an identity where the weak are honored and the powerful are humbled. Because to be a Christian is to become one with Jesus. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the first and the last. By him, all things were made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus made everything. And he made us in such a way that we would be grown up into maturity, and become one with him. Wrap your mind around that. What kind of creator crafts creatures with the intent of them growing up to a place where they become one with him, where he shares all of his divine right, all of his status, all of his privilege with them. He says, come sit on my throne. Come live in my being. Come know my Father. Come have it all. All the riches, all the glory, all us of low status, no more. We now boast in our exaltation. We are royalty. We are God's people. We are family of a king. What sort of creator Creates like that, the song of Scripture rips out with an answer. This time it's Paul again from his letter to the Philippians. I'm bouncing around. I hope the song metaphor is holding you. Philippians 2, 2 through 4. Paul again, complete my joy by being of the same mind, same language here, having the same love, living in harmony, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Different epistle, same instruction. Live in harmony. Be of the same mind. Be of the same love. Don't leverage all your advantages just for yourself, but count each other and each other's interests more significant than your own Why? Because of who you are. Because of whose mind is your mind. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no one like Jesus. 
throughout all the earth. No one with that amount of privilege, that amount of divine right, who just poured it all out. He said, no. They're going to be my people. I'm coming all the way down. I'm going to enter all the way in to every sorrow, to every disadvantage, to every reproach, to every failure. I'm going to feel it all with them. They're going to be my people so much that I'm going to experience every consequence of their failure. I'm going to take it all on to me. And I'm going to bury it in the ground. And I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to ascend into the heavens. And I'm going to take my people with me. Jesus came all the way down into our muck, into our mire, so that we might rise all the way up into his glory, into his ascendancy. This is our king, and this is who we are, church. Have this mind. This is our mind, the very mind of Christ. This is why Paul says we're obligated to use privilege for the good of others. It's not because people with means are more evil or more guilty or owe anybody anything. People of all statuses have plenty of evil and guilt to go around. Rather, it's because this is who we now are. We are one with Christ. So we are self-emptying people. We are people who work to understand the systems that oppress people. And we leverage whatever power and privilege we have to help people overcome to share the concerns of people who are struggling to enter their reproach with them. Our playbook isn't taken from any political party, of course, but we can learn. We can learn from people who are doing good work in this regard, whether they are Christians or not. We should not expect Solutions to be simple, but we can add our earnest voice to the conversation. This conversation desperately needs the earnest voice of the church. How can we help? How can we participate? This is who we are. So we can keep going, no matter how hard it gets, until the church is that shining city on a hill. I want to leave you with just two questions to reflect on this week. Maybe take some time, get alone, have something to write with. Question number one, who are the people or maybe people group that God is leading me toward? It might be opportunity. God may have introduced you to someone or certain people group of late, or it might just be something percolating in your soul, something in your heart, something in your story. Who are the people or people group that God is leading me toward? Second question, what are the resources or privileges that I have that could be of service, that could be of help to that person, those people, that group? Write those things down. 
And then commit to pray. God, what's the first step? Lead me. God, show me. Start by praying together right now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't leave us in all of our disadvantage to figure it out on our own or to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or to overcome. Thank you that you came into our story, that you took on our frailty, our flesh. Thank you that you took seriously our struggles, our concerns, our failures, our weaknesses, our brokenness, that you experienced that with us. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for that emblem for all time, that you are in it with us. And that suffering and loss and even death are not the end of the story. Lord, we pray that you would put people on our hearts as we go about our lives. We would walk out of the identity that you have given us. And that as a church, as a local church, we would become a participant in this good work in our city, a beacon, somewhere where people are taking these questions seriously, are wrestling with them, are trying and failing and reiterating, and doing all of that for the sake of other people. Doing all of it because it's who we are. We break down our defensiveness, break down our silliness that would dismiss or discount what your word has to say to us. Lead us forward for the sake of your name and your people. Pray, amen. Church, we have an opportunity now to...